The bears were on a precise north-south line now centered on the position of the frigate's radar signals. The raid commander ordered them to turn west and reduce altitude. Two aircraft failed to acknowledge the order, and he had to repeat it. 200 miles west of them, aboard the circling E-2C Hawkeye surveillance aircraft, a technician's head went up. He'd just heard someone speaking Russian, in code, but definitely Russian. Within minutes, every ship in the escort force had the information, and they all came up with the same answer. The backfires couldn't be here yet. These were bears. Everyone wanted to kill the bears. Carrier America started launching her fighters and additional radar aircraft. After all, the Russians could be looking for her. He's got to be heading right for us, the tactical action officer said. That's the general idea, Morris agreed. How far? Calloway asked. No way to know that. The Hawkeye copied a voice radio transmission. Probably it's fairly close, but freak atmospheric conditions can let you hear that sort of thing from half a world away. Mr. Leonard, let's go to battle stations for air action. Five minutes later, the frigate was ready. Mr. Bear. The Tomcat pilot stared at his TV display tube. The Russian aircraft was about 40 miles away, the sun glinting off its massive propellers. Deciding to close without using his radar for the moment, the fighter pilot advanced his throttles to 80% power and activated his missile controls. The head-on closure rate was over 1,000 miles per hour, 17 miles per minute. Then, energized, the pilot ordered, and instantly the radar intercept officer in the rear seat powered up the fighter's AWG-9 radar. We've got him, the Ryo reported a moment later. Shoot. Two missiles dropped free and accelerated to over 3,000 miles per hour. The Soviet electronics warfare technician was trying to isolate the signature characteristics of the frigate's search radar when a beep sounded on a separate warning receiver. He turned to see what the noise was and went pale. Air attack warning, he shouted over the intercom. Reacting at once, the pilot rolled the bear left and dove for the surface of the ocean. While aft, the EW technician activated his protective jamming systems. However, the turn had masked the jammer pods from the incoming missiles. What's happening? The raid commander demanded over the intercom. We have an interceptor radar on us, the technician replied, scared but cool. Jamming pods are activated. The raid commander turned to his communications man. Get a warning out. Enemy fighter activity this position. But there wasn't time. Phoenixes covered the distance in less than 20 seconds. The first went wild and missed, but the second locked on the diving bomber and blew its tail off. The bear fell to the sea with as little grace as a dropped sheet of paper.
The radar showed the Tomcat, and they watched as it launched two missiles that immediately disappeared from sight, and then, silently, as the Tomcat continued east for 30 seconds. Then it turned around and headed back west. That gentleman is a kill, Morris said. Splash one bear. How do you know? Calloway asked. You think he would have turned back if he missed? And if it was anything but a bear, he'd have broken radio silence. ESM, we copy any radio traffic from 080? The petty officer in the forward starboard corner of the compartment didn't look up. No captain, not a peep. Damn, Morris said. It works. If the bugger didn't get a message out, Calloway understood. We're the only ones who know. Maybe we can bushwhack the whole attack force. Morris stepped over to the display screen. The America's fighters were now all in the air, 70 miles south of the convoy. He looked at the bulkhead clock. The backfires were about 40 minutes away. He lifted a phone. Bridge. Combat. Signal battle axe to close in. Within seconds, Battleaxe turned hard a port and headed west toward Reuben James. One new thing had already worked today, Morris thought. Why not another? Stand by to launch Hilo, he ordered. O'Malley was sitting in his cockpit reading a magazine, or at least letting his eyes scan the pictures, while his mind struggled to detach itself from what was going on around him. The announcement over the loudspeaker tore him away from Miss July. Immediately, Ensign Ralston began the engine start sequence while O'Malley scanned the trouble board for any mechanical problems, then looked out the door to be sure that the deck crewmen were clear. What are we supposed to be doing, Commander? The systems operator inquired. We're supposed to be missile bait, Willie, O'Malley replied amiably, and lifted off. The southernmost bear was within 60 miles of the convoy, but didn't yet know it. Nor did the Americans, since he was below the horizon from Reuben James's radar. The bear's pilot did know that it was about time for the aircraft to climb and switch on their own search radars. But word hadn't come yet from the raid commander. Though there was no indication of trouble, the pilot was worried. His instinct told him something strange was happening. One of the bears that had disappeared last week reported tracking a single American frigate radar. Nothing more. Just like now. The raid commander then had aborted the backfire mission for fear of enemy fighter activity, only to be dressed down for supposed cowardice. As was so often the case in combat, the only data available were negative. They knew that four bears had not returned. He knew that his raid commander had not yet given the expected order. He knew there had not been any positive sign of trouble. He also knew that he was not happy. Estimated distance to that American frigate, he asked over his intercom. 130 kilometers, the navigator answered. Maintain radio silence, the pilot told himself. Those are the orders. Screw the orders said aloud. The pilot reached down and flipped on his radio. Goal two to goal one, over. Nothing. 
He repeated the call twice more. Lots of radio receivers heard that, and in less than a minute the bear's position was plotted, 40 miles southeast of the convoy. A tomcat dove after the contact. The raid commander didn't answer. He would have answered, the pilot told himself. He would have answered. The backfires should now be less than 200 kilometers away. What are we leading them into? Activate the radar, he ordered. Every screen ship detected the distinctive emissions from the big bulge radar. The nearest SAM-equipped ship, the frigate Groves, immediately energized her missile radars and fired a surface-to-air missile at the oncoming bear. But the Tomcat fighter that was also racing toward the bear was too close. The frigate shut down her tracking radar and the SM-1 missile lost radar lock and self-destructed automatically. Aboard the bear, the warnings came back to back. First surface-to-air missile alarm, then an air intercept radar. And then the radar operator acquired the convoy. Many ships to the northwest. The radar operator passed the information to the navigator, who worked out a position report for the backfires. The bear shut down her radar and dove while the communications officer broadcast his sighting report. And then everyone's radars lit up. There are the backfires, the tactical action officer said as the symbols appeared on the scope. Bearing 041 range, 180 miles. On the bridge, the executive officer was as nervous as he would ever get. In addition to the inbound bomber raid, he was now conning his ship exactly 50 feet from the side of HMS Battleaxe. The ships were so close together that on a radar scope, they'd appear as a single target. Five miles away, O'Malley and the helicopter from Battleaxe were also flying close formation over the ocean at 20 knots. Each had its flip-enhanced transponder turned on. Ordinarily too small to register on this sort of radar, the helicopters would now appear to be a ship, something worthy of a missile attack. The air action now had all the elegance of a saloon fight. The Tomcats on combat air patrol near the convoy flew toward the three bears, the first of which already had a missile streaking toward it. The other two had not yet detected the convoy, and never would, as they ran due east to get away. It was a vain attempt. Propeller-driven patrol bombers cannot run from supersonic fighters. Gull 2 died first. The pilot managed to get his contact report out and acknowledged before a pair of Sparrow missiles exploded close aboard, setting his wing afire. He ordered his men to bail out. Above him, a squadron of Tomcats headed toward the backfires and the race was to see who got into missile-firing position first. The Soviet bombers climbed steeply on afterburner, activating their own look-down radars to find targets for their missiles. Their orders were to locate and kill escorts, and they found what they were looking for 30 miles from the body of the convoy. Two blips. The large blip in the rear drew six shots. The smaller one, five miles away, drew four. Toland held the red rocket Telex in his hand. What does Com Eastland have to say about it? He's probably going over this one now. You ready? He asked the fighter pilot. 
Damn right I'm ready. The teleprinter in the corner of the room started chattering. Initiate Operation Doolittle. Vampire! Vampire! We have incoming missiles! Here we go again, Morris thought. The tactical display was more modern than what he'd had on Ferris. Each of the incoming missiles was marked with a velocity vector that indicated speed and direction. They were coming in low. Morris lifted his phone. Bridge, combat. Execute separation maneuver. Bridge, aye. Separating now, Ernst said. Crash stop. All back emergency. The helmsman pulled the throttle control back, then abruptly reversed the pitch of the propeller blades, throwing the ship from ahead to full astern. Reuben James slowed so rapidly that men had to brace themselves, and Battleaxe forged ahead, accelerating to 25 knots. As soon as it was safe, the British frigate turned hard to port, and Reuben James went to a head full and turned sharply to starboard. Any Soviet radar operator who had lingered behind would have been impressed by the deception. The oncoming AS-4 missiles had been targeted on a single blip. Now there were two, and they were separating. The missiles divided their attention evenly, with three opting for either target. Morris watched his display intently. The distance between his ship and his companion was widening rapidly. Missiles are tracking us, the ESM operator said loudly. We have multiple missile seeker heads tracking us. Right full rudder, reverse course, fire off chaff rockets. Everyone in the combat information center jumped as four canisters exploded directly overhead, filling the air with aluminum foil and creating a radar target for the missiles to track while the frigate heeled violently to port as she turned. Her forward missile launcher turned around with her, a SAM already assigned to the first incoming Russian missile. The frigate righted herself on a northerly course, three miles behind Battleaxe. Here we go the weapons officer said. The solution light blinked on the fire control console. The first of the white-painted SM-1 missiles shot into the sky. It had scarcely cleared the launch rail when the launcher twisted in two dimensions and accepted another missile from the circular magazine, then turned and elevated again, firing seven seconds after the first missile was launched, then repeated the cycle twice more. That's it, O'Malley said, when he saw the first smoke trail. He punched his finger on the blip and pants button. Hatchet, shut down your emitter and break left. Both helicopters went full power and ran away. Four missiles suddenly had no targets. They kept heading west to look for more, but there were none to be found. More chaff, Morris ordered watching the electronic traces of friendly and unfriendly missiles converge. CIC shook again as another cloud of aluminum blasted into the air, and the wind carried it toward the incoming missiles. We still have missiles tracking us. Hit, the weapons officer exclaimed. The first missile disappeared from the scope, intercepted 16 miles out. But the second Soviet missile kept coming. The first SAM sent after it missed exploding harmlessly behind it, and then the second one missed two. Another SAM was fired. Range was down to six miles. Five, four, three. Hit! One missile left, veering off. 
going after the chaff, passing aft. The missile struck the water 2,000 yards from Reuben James. Even at that distance, the noise was impressive. It was followed by total silence in the CIC. Men kept staring at their instruments, looking for additional missiles, and it took several seconds before they were satisfied that there were no more. One by one, the sailors looked at their comrades and began to breathe again. What modern combat lacks in humanity, Calloway observed, it more than makes up for in intensity. Morris leaned back in his chair. Or something like that. What's the story on battle axe? Still on radar, sir, the tactical action officer replied. Morris lifted the radio telephone. Bravo, this is Romeo. Do you read? Over. I do believe we are still alive. Perrin was examining his tactical display and shaking his head in amazement. Any damage? None. Hatchet is checking in. He's all right, too. Remarkable, Captain Perrin said. Any further inbound traffic? We show none. Negative. The Tomcats chased the backfires off the scope. Let's get reformed. Roger, Romeo. Morris hung up and looked around the CIC. Well done, people. The sailors in the room looked at each other, and presently some grins started showing. But they didn't last long. The TAO looked up. For your information, Captain, Ivan fired a quarter of his missiles at us. So far as I can tell, the Tomcats got about six, and Bunker Hill got most of the rest. But we show one frigate hit and three murchies. The fighters are returning. He kept his voice neutral. They report zero kills on the backfire force. Damn, Morris said. The trap had failed, and he didn't know why. He had no idea that Stornoway considered it a success. key to the operation, as with all military operations, was communications, and not enough time had been spent setting the lines up on this one to suit Toland. The America's radar aircraft tracked the backfires all the way off the scope. The data from the aircraft was linked to the carrier, thence by satellite to Norfolk, and by satellite again to Northwood. His data came by landline from Royal Navy headquarters. The most important NATO mission of the war depended on transistors and telephone wire more than the weapons that were to be employed. Okay, their last course was 029, speed 610 knots. That puts them over Iceland's north coast in 2 hours 17 minutes. How much time did they have on burner? Commander Winters asked. About 5, according to America. Toland frowned. This was pretty thin intelligence information. Any way you cut it, their fuel reserves are thinned down some. Okay. Three aircraft, 80 miles apart. He looked over at the newest satellite weather photo. Good visibility. We'll spot them. Whoever does, follows. The other planes come right back home. Good luck, Commander. The three Tomcats climbed slowly to altitude on a course northwest from Stornoway, and at 35,000 feet linked up with their tankers. Several hundred miles away, the backfire crews did much the same thing. The presence of American fighters over the convoy in large numbers had come as a rude shock, 
but time and distance had been in their favor, and they'd managed to escape without loss this time. The crew of each aircraft talked among themselves, their emotions released by the climax of yet another dangerous mission. They discussed the claims they'd make on returning to Kirovsk, based on a straightforward mathematical formula. One missile in three was judged to have hit a target, even accounting for enemy SAM fire. Today, SAM opposition had been light, though none had lingered to evaluate it properly. By consensus, they would claim 16 ship kills, and claim both the outside sonar pickets that their comrades in submarines were having such a bad time with. The flight crews relaxed and sipped tea from thermos jugs as they contemplated their next visit to the 80-ship convoy. The Tomcat separated as they spotted the mountains of Iceland. No radio signals were passed. The flyers exchanged hand signals before breaking off on their patrol stations. They knew the radars couldn't reach them there. Commander Winters checked his watch. The backfires should be here in about 30 minutes. Such a beautiful island, the backfire pilot observed to his co-pilot. Pretty to look at. Living there, I am not so certain about. I wonder if the women are as pretty as I have heard. One day we must have mechanical difficulties. Then we could land there and find out. We must get you married, Volodya. The co-pilot laughed. So many tears would be shed. How can I deny myself to the women of the world? The pilot punched up his radio. Keflavik, this is Sea Eagle 2-6. Status check. Sea Eagle, we show no contacts except for your group. Count is correct. IFF transponders show normal. Acknowledged. Out. The pilot switched off. So, Volodya, our friends are still there. Lonely place. If there are women about and you are Kulturning, you need never be lonely. Another voice came over the intercom. Will somebody shut that horny bastard up? The navigator suggested. Studying to be a political officer, the co-pilot inquired. How long to home? Two hours, twenty-five minutes. The backfire continued northeast as it passed over the desolate center of the island. Tally-ho, the pilot said quietly. One o'clock and low. The Tomcat's onboard television system showed the distinctive shape of the Russian bomber. Say what you want about the Russians, Winters thought. They do build them pretty. He turned the aircraft, which took his nose-mounted camera off the target but his backseat officer put his binoculars on the backfire and soon spotted two more flying in a loose formation. As expected, their course was northeast, and they were cruising at about 30,000 feet. Winters looked for a big cloud to hide in and found one. Visibility dropped to a few yards. There could be another backfire out there, Winters thought, and maybe he likes flying in clouds too. That could really ruin this mission. He ran out of cloud a moment later, banked his fighter hard, and ducked back inside, his mind computing time and distance. The backfire should all be past now. He pulled back on his stick and popped out of the cloud top. There they be, the backseater said first. Heads up, I see more of them at three o'clock. The pilot vanished back into the cloud for another ten minutes. Finally, 
Nothing to the south of us. They should all be passed by now, don't you think? Yeah, let's go looking. One terrifying minute later, Winters was wondering if he hadn't let them get too far ahead, as his TV system swept across the sky and found nothing. Patience, he told himself, and increased his speed to 690 knots. Five minutes later, a dot appeared on his screen. It grew to three dots. He estimated he was 40 miles behind the backfires, and with the sun at his back, there was no way they could spot him. His backseater made a check of the radar warning receiver and the air behind them for additional aircraft, a procedure repeated three times a minute. If an American fighter could be out here, why not a Russian? The pilot watched the numbers click off on his inertial navigation system, kept an eye on fuel, and watched forward for any change in the Russian bomber formation. It was both exciting and boring. He knew the significance of what he was doing, but the actual doing was no more thrilling than driving a 747 from New York to L.A. For over an hour they flew, covering the 700 miles between Iceland and the Norwegian coast. Here's where it gets cute, the backseater said. Air search radar ahead looks like Anya. Still over 100 miles away, they'll probably have us in two or three minutes. That's nice. Where there was air search radar, there would be fighters. Got their position worked out? Yep. Start transmitting. Winters turned the aircraft and headed back out to sea. 200 miles away, a circling British Nimrod receded the signal and retransmitted to a communication satellite. Admiral Beatty was trying to remain calm, but it didn't come easily to a man whose nerves had been stretched and abused by crisis after crisis since the war began. Doolittle was his baby. For the past two hours, he'd waited for word from the Tomcat. Two had returned without sighting the Russians. One had not. Was it tracking them as planned, or had it merely fallen into the sea? The printer in the corner of the communications room began to make the screeing sound that the Admiral had learned to hate. Eyeballs reports hairs at 69-20N. 15 slash 45 E at 1543 Zulu course 021 speed 580 KTS Alt 30. Beatty tore the page off and handed it to his air operations officer. And that puts them on the ground in 37 minutes. Assuming it's the last group and a 15 minute spread, the first bombers will be landing in 22 minutes. 15 minutes from now then? Yes, Admiral. Get the order out. In 30 seconds, half a dozen separate satellite channels began transmitting the same message. The three American submarines had lain on the bottom of the Barents Sea near the Russian coastline for what seemed like half a lifetime before finally receiving the signal to move south. McCafferty smiled with relief. The three British submarines, including HMS Torbay, had already done their job. They had sneaked up on a Russian frigate and four patrol boats patrolling the Russian-Norwegian coastline and attacked with torpedoes. The Russians could only assume a major effort was underway to penetrate their patrol barrier and had sent their anti-sub patrol force west to meet it, leaving the way clear for Chicago and her mates. He hoped. As they closed in, his electronics technicians plotted and replotted their bearings. They had to be in exactly the right place when they fired their missiles. 
How long before we shoot, the XO asked. They'll let us know, McCafferty said. And then, with the chatter of the message from Northwood, they did know. They would launch at 16.02 Zulu time. Up scope. McCafferty spun the instrument around. A rainstorm overhead drove four-foot waves. Looks clear to me, the XO said, watching the TV display. The captain slapped the handles up on the scope. It headed down into its well. ESM? Lots of radar stuff, Captain, the technician replied. I show ten different transmitters in operation. McCafferty inspected the Tomahawk weapons status board on the starboard side of the attack center. His torpedo tubes were loaded with two Mark 48s and two Harpoon missiles. The clock ticked away toward 16.02. Commence launch sequence. Toggle switches were thrown, and the weapons status lights blinked red. The captain and the weapons officer inserted their keys in the panel and turned them. The petty officer on the weapons board turned the firing handle to the left. Forward, in the bow of the submarine, the guidance systems of 12 Tomahawk cruise missiles were fully activated. Onboard computers were told where their flight would begin. They already knew where it was supposed to end. Initiate launch, McCafferty ordered. Amatist was not part of the regular Soviet Navy. Principally concerned with security operations, this Grisha-class patrol frigate was manned by a KGB crew, and her captain had spent the last 12 hours sprinting and drifting, dipping his helicopter-type sonar and listening in the American fashion rather than the Russian. With her diesel engine shut down, she made no noise at all, and her short profile was hard to spot from more than a mile away. She had not heard the American submarines approach. First Tomahawk broke the surface of the Barents Sea at 1601.58, 2,000 yards from the Russian frigate. The lookout took a second or two to react. As he saw the cylindrical shape rise on its solid rocket booster and arc southwest, an icy lead ball materialized in his stomach. Captain, missile launched! The captain raced out onto the bridge wing and looked on in amazement. Battle stations, radio room, call Fleet HQ. Tell them enemy missiles launching from Grid Square 451-679. Now, all head full. Rudder right. The frigate's diesel engines roared into life. What in hell is that? The sonar chief asked. His submarine shuddered every four seconds with the missile launches, but... Con, sonar, we have a contact bearing 098. Diesel. Surface ship sounds like a Grisha, and he's close, sir. Upscope. McCafferty whirled the periscope around and snapped the handle to full power. He saw the Russian frigate turning hard. Snapshot. Set it up. Surface target bearing 097. Range. He worked the stedimeter control. 1600. Course. Shit. He's turning away. Call it 090. Speed 20. Too close for a missile shot they had to engage with torpedoes. The fire control man tapped the numbers into the computer. The computer needed 11 seconds to digest the information. Set. Ready for tubes one and three. Flooding tubes, outer doors open. Ready, the XO said. Match generated bearings and shoot. Fire one. Fire three. The executive officer struggled with his emotions and won. Where had that Grisha come from? Reload with 48s. Last bird away the missile technician announced, 
securing from launch. Left full rudder. Amethyst never saw the missiles launching behind her. The men were too busy racing to stations, while her captain rang up full power and the ship's weapons officer ran up in his shorts to work the rocket launchers. They didn't need sonar for this. They could see all too well where the submarine was, firing missiles at the motherland. Fire when ready, the captain yelled. The lieutenant's thumb came down on the firing key. Twelve anti-submarine rockets arched through the air. Amatist, the radio squawked. Repeat your message. What missiles? What kind of missiles? USS Providence discharged her last missile just as the frigate fired at her. The captain ordered flank speed and a radical turn, even as the rockets tipped over and began to fall toward his submarine. They fell in a wide circular pattern designed to cover the maximum possible area, two exploding within 100 yards, close enough to startle, but not to damage. The last one hit the water directly over the submarine's sail. A second later, the 46-pound warhead exploded. Amethyst's captain ignored the radio while he tried to decide if his first salvo had hit the target or not. The last rocket had exploded faster than the others. He was about to give the order to fire again when the sonar officer reported two objects approaching from aft, and he shouted rudder orders. The ship was already at full speed as the radio speaker continued to scream at him. Both fish have acquired the target. Up scope. McCafferty let it go all the way up before pulling the handles down. At full magnification, the Grisha nearly filled the lens. And then both fish hit her port side, and the thousand-ton patrol frigate disintegrated before his eyes. He turned completely around, sweeping the horizon to check for additional enemy ships. Okay, it's clear. That won't last very long. He was shooting at Providence, sir. Sonar, what do you have on 090? McCafferty asked. Lots of noise from the fish, sir, but I think we have blowing air at 098. Get us over there. McCafferty kept the periscope up as the XO conned the sub toward Providence. The Grisha was well and truly destroyed. Together, the torpedoes carried nearly 1,500 pounds of high explosives. He saw two life rafts that had inflated automatically on hitting the water, but no men. Boston is calling on the Gertrude Skipper. They want to know what the hell happened. Tell them. The captain adjusted the periscope slightly. Okay, there she is. She's surfacing. Holy shit. The submarine's sail was wrecked, the after third of it completely gone, and the rest shredded. One diving plane hung down like the wing of a crippled bird, and the periscopes and masts housed in the structure were bent into the shape of a modernistic sculpture. Try to raise providence on the Gertrude. Sixty Tomahawk missiles were now in the air. On leaving the water, solid-fuel rockets had boosted them to an altitude of 1,000 feet, where their wings and jet engine air inlets had deployed. As soon as their jet engines had begun to function, the Tomahawks began a shallow descent that ended 30 feet above the ground. Onboard radar systems scanned ahead to keep the missiles close to the ground, and to match the terrain with map coordinates stored in their computer memories. Six separate Soviet radars detected the missile's boost phase, then lost them as they went low. 
The Russian technicians, whose job it was to watch for a possible nuclear attack against their homeland, were every bit as tense as their Western counterparts. And the weeks of sustained conventional conflict, coupled with continuous maximum alert status, had frayed nerves to the breaking point. As soon as the tomahawks had been detected rising from the sea, a ballistic missile attack warning had flashed to Moscow. Amethyst's visual missile warning arrived at naval headquarters in Severomorsk almost as fast, and a thunderbolt alert sent immediately, a code word prefix guaranteeing instant passage to the Ministry of Defense. Launch authority for the anti-ballistic missiles deployed around Moscow was automatically released to the battery commanders. And though it was several minutes before radar officers were able to confirm to Moscow's satisfaction that the missiles had dropped off their scopes and were not on ballistic trajectories, defense units stayed on alert. And all over northern Russia, air defense interceptors scrambled. The missiles could not have cared about the furor they had caused. At this point, the Russian coast was composed of rocky bluffs and cliffs that gave way to tundra, flat marsh of northern climes. It was ideal terrain for the cruise missiles, which settled down to a flight path scant feet over the grassy swamps at a speed of 500 knots. Each flew over Lake Babazero, their first navigational reference point, and there, their flight paths diverged. The Soviet fighters now lifting off the ground had little idea what they were after. Radar information gave the course and speed of the targets, but if they were cruise missiles, they could reach as far as the Black Sea coast. They could even be targeted on Moscow and be flying a deceptive course far off the direct path to the Soviet capital. On orders from their ground controllers, the interceptors arrayed themselves south of the White Sea and switched on their look-down radars to see if they could spot the missiles crossing the flat surface. But they weren't going to Moscow. Dodging between the occasional hills, the missiles flew on a bearing of 213 until they reached the scrub pine forest. One by one, they banked hard to the right and changed course to 290. The last backfire bomber circled Umbazero South, waiting to land. The pilot checked his fuel. About 30 minutes left, there was not that much of a hurry. For security reasons, the three regiments were divided among four airfields clustered south of the mining city of Kirovsk. The tall hills around the town held powerful radars and mobile SAM batteries to stave off a NATO air attack. Most of the smelters were still operating, the pilot saw, the smoke rising from the many tall chimneys. Sea Eagle 26, you are cleared to land, the tower said finally. Who will it be tonight, Volodya? 20 degrees of flaps, airspeed 200, landing gear is down and locked. Irina Petrovna, I think, the tall skinny one at the telephone exchange. What's that? the pilot asked. A small white object suddenly appeared over the runway in front of him. The first of 12 Tomahawk missiles assigned to Boomba Zero South cut across the runway at a shallow angle. ready force backfire went first. Two bomblets fell on its wing and the bomber fireballed into the sky. The pilot of 2-6 advanced his throttles and climbed out of the landing pattern. Watching in horror as ten bombers exploded before his eyes, 
and telltale puffs of smoke told him of less serious damage to many others. In two minutes, it was over. Crash trucks raced like toys along the concrete as men played fire hoses on the burning trucks and aircraft. The pilot headed north for his alternate field and saw smoke rising there also. Fifteen minutes fuel. You'd better find us a place fast, Volodya warned. They turned left for Kirov's south, and the same story was repeated. The attack had been timed for the missiles to hit all four targets simultaneously. Africanda, this is Sea Eagle 26. We are low on fuel and need to land immediately. Can you take us? Affirmative 26. Runway is clear. Wind is 265 at 20. Very well, we are coming in. Out. The pilot turned. What the hell was that? He asked Volodya. Communications is gone. Fire control is gone. Fairwater plane's gone. We stopped the leaks. Engines are okay. We can steam, the skipper of USS Providence said over the Gertrude. Very well. Stand by. Boston was also alongside. Todd, this is Danny. What do you think? She won't make it out alone. I suggest we send the rest back out. You and me escort her. Agreed. You follow him out. We'll try to clear Datum as quick as we can. Good luck, Danny. Boston raised her radio whip and made a quick transmission. A minute later, Chicago's sonar showed the noise of the other submarines racing north. Providence recommends you come to course 015 and go as fast as you can. We'll cover your tail. Boston will rendezvous later and we'll both escort you to the pack. You can't risk it. We can move your fucking boat. McCafferty shouted into the microphone. He was exactly three months senior in rank to his counterpart on Providence. Presently, the wounded submarine dived and headed northeast at 15 knots. Her damaged sail structure sounded like a junk wagon in the water flow. But there was nothing they could do about it. If the submarines were to have any chance of survival, they had to put as much distance between themselves and the firing point as they could.